Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. We're going to be doing the entire chapter, so I'm not going to have you to stand, but I do want you to pray with me. Father, we need you. I pray you would just reveal yourself to us this day. Reveal our own hearts to us and meet us and be what we need you to be in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Sorry about missing last week. Connie and I were delivering supplies to a leper colony. In the book, Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey tells a story of a man named Douglas. Douglas was a sincere and devout Christian whose wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. The breast was removed, but a couple of years later, the cancer was found in her lungs. And so she had to go through the agony of chemotherapy. One night in the middle of all this, he was driving with his wife and 12-year-old daughter when a drunk driver swerved and struck them head on. His wife was unhurt. His daughter had minor injuries. But Douglas himself received a massive blow to his head. He would have sudden headaches and dizzy spells, and he couldn't work a full day. He would become disoriented and forgetful. And he developed double vision in one eye, which would refuse to focus. When Yancey met Douglas to interview him about his disappointments with God, Douglas told him, To tell you the truth, Philip, I didn't feel any disappointment with God. We tend to think life should be fair because God is fair. And if I confuse God with the physical reality of life by expecting constant good health, for example, then I set myself up for a crashing disappointment. I wish I could stand up here and tell you that I'm certain I would possess that kind of maturity in those kind of circumstances. But honestly, no, none of us know how would we would respond until we are put under that kind of pressure. How would we respond if everything started going wrong and it wasn't even our fault? That's part of what we're going to be looking at today. Look at verse 1 with me, please. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other was Rechab, the son of Remon the Berethite, of the children of Benjamin. For Berith also was part of Benjamin. 
because the Berethites fled to Gidom and have been sojourners there until this day. Here's some interesting trivia, although very sad. Recent excavations have revealed that the Berethites had a terrible struggle with alcohol. Not really. That's just what popped into my head when I read it. This is why I covet your prayers. Isbosheth knew that his commander Abner had defected and gone over to Hebron. He also knew that Abner had entered into negotiations with David. It's not clear how much he knew of Abner's progress in persuading the northern tribes to join him in going over to David. But there is no reason to think that this had been kept secret from him. And because of that, he is now terrified. The news that reached him shattered what little remained of his courage. When Ishbosheth saw son heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage completely failed. Literally, that last phrase is, his hands became slack. He lost his grip. While Abner had terrified him, Ishbosheth was nothing without the strong man who had made him king. What would become of him without Abner by his side? And we have to wonder, was all Israel panicked because they saw their king losing his grip? Or because they too had heard about Abner's death in Hebron? Or probably both. So what would now become of the people who had rejected David and given their allegiance to this trembling puppet king. They had recently been persuaded by Abner that their future lay with David. But remember, they did not know that their change of heart had been communicated to David, nor did they know how David responded to this news. And the news that Abner had been killed in Hebron hardly suggested that he had received a warm welcome there. Remember, news traveled very slowly back then. So if they had not yet heard about Joab's role, and it had not been the king's will, they, like Ishbosheth, could only understand the news of Abner's death at Hebron as terribly threatening news. Now we are witnessing the last stages of the disintegration of the house of Saul, which ends with a weak and quivering king leading a terrified people. Verse 4, please. And stop thinking about lunch. That was my pastor's voice, by the way. So tremble, all ye ends of the earth. Verse 4. Jonathan Saul's son had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. We are now introduced to Mephibosheth. You see, the death of Saul would mean that there would be now a new king. And the custom of that day was, when a new king ascended to power, everyone in the previous king's family would all be killed. Therefore, hearing that Saul and Jonathan had died, Jonathan's son's nurse grabbed him and ran to protect him from what she knew would otherwise be coming his way. This accident had occurred about seven years before Abner's death in Hebron. 
And so Mephibosheth would now be about 12 years old. Mephibosheth's name, like that of his uncle Ishbosheth, appears to be an, an unfortunate nickname. Now the evidence is incomplete and open to a number of different interpretations, but it is likely that the Bosheth part of the name is a substitute for the word Baal, which means shame. And so his name would mean shameful one. And like us, he was crippled by the fall, but we will get to more of that later. Verse 5, please. Then the sons of Remon the Berethite, Rechab and Beana, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house, as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Beana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him and took his head, and they were all night escaping through the plain. There is an important lesson here for people engaged in any form of Christian ministry particularly those who may be tempted with the spirit of our time to see success as the measure and the justification of all things. We are tempted to evaluate Christian ministry and leadership solely on success criteria. For example, Joel Olstein's church averages 52,000 people a week in attendance. From a worldly perspective, that is a staggering success. But since Olstein doesn't preach the gospel, from God's perspective, it is an utter failure. We have to realize that the church is not a Fortune 500 company. Big buildings, gargantuan budgets, and huge crowds doesn't necessarily equal success in the eyes of the Lord. Now, being large also doesn't mean that a church is heretical either. You can be true to Scripture and still have an enormous church. In fact, two of the 20 biggest churches in America are Calvary chapels. But that cannot be the sole criteria that we use to measure things. Anyway, we are about to see how desperate two men become when at last it becomes clear to them that they are now on the wrong side of this struggle. To them, the end justified the means. They are prepared to do whatever they can, even an assassination to accomplish what they thought was the plan of God. And without further explanation, we must suppose that the wheat supplies were available from somewhere within the building that was Ishbosheth's house and that Rechab and Biana had an acceptable reason to be gathering provisions. However, once inside, they carried out their real intent and assassinated the sleeping Ishbosheth, and then went so far as to decapitate him. I'm sure they thought this was the best way to get ahead in life. I'm sorry. I know it was corny, but I couldn't pass it up. It's probably a good thing the Calvary Chapel doesn't allow the congregation to vote the pastor out. <clears throat> but please listen carefully to me. It's never right to do wrong to do right. 
Never compromise righteousness, even when you imagine that good will come from that unrighteous action. True biblical success never goes down compromise road. Now, I doubt that you will be tempted to think that an assassination is called for to advance the gospel. But in our day, it is more common than we would like to think for Christians to try to advance God's kingdom by disgraceful and unworthy means. All I'm saying is be sure that we love righteousness more than we love success. On the other hand, wickedness is never able to thwart God's kingdom. In his infinite wisdom and power, God uses even wicked deeds that he hates and judges to advance his purposes sometimes. And while the Lord may use the wicked act of men to advance his own good purposes, it is the height of presumption for the perpetrator of the wickedness to present his evil deed as a gift to God. And so with their grisly trophy in their hand, the true brothers retraced in the opposite direction the steps of Abner after his act of killing. Verse 8, please. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. But David answered Rechab and beyond his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore shall I, now require his, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. If the murder of Abner was a heinous crime, this murder was even worse. For this man's only crime was being the son of Saul. He had broken no law, he had injured no person, and he wasn't even given the opportunity to defend himself. His murders didn't even show respect for his dead body, for they beheaded him so they could take the evidence to David to receive what they thought would be their reward. Even worse, the two murderers told David that the Lord had avenged him. But as on other occasions, David saw things quite differently. He knew that an opportunity to do evil is never a gift from God. Now the grim justice that we see here against the assassins was matched by an act of grace to a former rival. David had his men take the head of Ishbosheth and bury it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Thus Saul's son and his general were honored by David and buried together in Hebron. But Saul's kingdom has surely now came to the end. One old commentator that I read offers up this outstanding insight. He writes, Looking back over the chapter, we note that it was Ishbosheth's trembling hands that signaled his demise in verse 1. 
Mephibosheth's crippled feet exemplified the failing house of Saul in verse 4. And finally, the removal, taking, showing, and bearing of Ishbosheth's head was the final sign of his fall. It has been a chapter in which body parts have represented the disintegration of the house of Saul. I opened our sermon with a question. How would we respond if life treated us unfairly? I'd like to look at that through the life of Mephibosheth. You see, Mephibosheth had royal blood flowing through his veins. He was the grandson of Saul, the king of Israel, and the son of the heir apparent, Jonathan. He was born and brought up in regal splendor at the palace. He had everything that a little boy could possibly need. The best in clothing, the best in playthings, the best in food. There was never a lack of anything for Mephibosheth in the palace in which he lived. And what a future he seemingly had. I would imagine that the family talked about Mephibosheth when he was born, and what a beautiful child that he was, and how that one day he would make a great king. His future was all laid out. However, all of that changes when Mephibosheth is only five years old, and he is dropped by his nurse. So now, where do they escape to? Where will they go? They are now practically homeless. In one moment, living up in the palace, and the next, an exile. Mephibosheth has to be hidden, but where? They finally find a safe haven in a place called Lodabar, which translated means no pasture. It was a barren and a bleak wilderness area. From the beauty of the palace and all those extravagant surroundings to a place where there's not even a pasture to feed the animals. But at least he is safe and provided for. But I wonder how many times he must have lay upon his bed and looked down at his crippled legs and thought, about the barrenness that was surrounding him and what his future might have been. But now he is crippled and now he is confined. I'd like to close with something I read from one author who imagined this concerning what happened to Mephibosheth, and I'll just add a couple comments at the end of it. To set the stage, Mephibosheth's nurse has just learned that both Saul and Jonathan have been killed on the battlefield. He writes, Once word reached her that both had been killed on the battlefield, something seized her. Fear, panic, and grief seized her heart all at once. These emotions sent her spiraling out of control. With adrenaline surging, she rushes around the house and grabs a backpack and hurriedly tosses some cheese, a cold piece of lamb, and a half a loaf of bread that is slowly hardened as the day has passed. She quickly tosses a few clothes, some of her own and some from Mephibosheth, into another bag. She looks around once more at this place that has been their home for at least five years for her and Mephibosheth, and she now strikes out for the high country. With tears in her eyes, but the strength of fear motivating her steps, she grabs up the little five-year-old and starts running for the hills. 
The little boy has no idea what is going on, but he has enough sense to stay quiet because he can sense the alarm in his nurse's actions. She runs for a mile or so and realizes she cannot keep up this pace forever, and so she slows down to a brisk walk, carrying the little boy in her bags. The day has started to give in to dusk, and so she starts running again. She is familiar with some of the area, and so she remembers that there is a cave that she can get to in a few hours after dark, if she will but hurry. It's not long before she is exhausted from alternately running and walking. There is an incredible pain in her side, and her breath is now coming in great heaving gasps. Little Mephibosheth, with his trusting eyes, is aware that something is terribly wrong but his immature mind cannot even begin to process what has happened, nor what is to come in the days beyond. The nurse fleeing from a perceived threat and harm is desperately trying to find the mouth of the cave that she once frequented when she was a child. The sounds of the night start coming with regularity. The chirping crickets, the lone whine of a distant wolf, the high-pitched cry of a nighthawk, the beating wings of an owl who is pursuing his prey in the dark. All of these sounds assail her ears, and it's not long before a choking panic seizes her again for the second time. Her bags now seemingly weigh a ton. The child she is now having to carry has gone to sleep, and his listless body is even harder to manage now than earlier in the day when he was awake. The terrain is no longer friendly to her anymore either. She realizes she's on a steep climbing path that is littered with rocks of varying sizes. Some of them are as large as basketballs, and others are marble-sized, and she's having to navigate her way through them. Her run is now turned more into a jog and will not be long until her strength forces her into a walk. The miles begin to fly by, and it's nearing midnight when she finally starts to recognize the country that she knew as a little girl. Finally, the moon is cooperating with her, and the whole landscape has this white, soft light that only a full moon can bring. Suddenly, in her mind, she hears a distant voice that is calling to her after all these years. It's the voice of her father, who has been long dead, but it has a strength on this night as never before. There have been times before that this voice of her father has called out to her with some long-forgotten advice that had helped her. Now this voice calls out again, Little Lamb, that is what he would call her. Watch out for the pit vipers hiding in the rocks. This voice in the past brings her pace to even a slower walk. She has gone no more than 30 yards when she sees a huge pit viper just two steps beyond her. She turns and begins a dead run back down the path. Because she is running down here, and fear has downhill, and her fear has shot her legs into overdrive. She stumbles on the rocks, and down, 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 she tumbles. She loses the child, and he goes flying beyond her, and lands awkwardly on a mid-sized boulder at the edge of the path. And then he teeters over the edge and falls into a small ravine. He is screaming in pain, and this one single event changes his little life forever. The nurse, bleeding from lacerated knees and elbows, aching from bruises on her back and her right side, and she is also suffering from a blow to her head, and she momentarily blacks out. 
It seems like forever before she finally comes back to. And she is brought back to a groggy consciousness by some fearful screams. She has no idea how long she has blacked out, but she knows that the boy needs her in the worst sort of a way. So she finally summons herself to her feet and crawls, or more aptly, falls into the ravine where the child lies. She understands immediately that this is more than a bump and a bruise kind of deal. She sees that pain in his face. There's a strange whiteness about him. And then she notices that he cannot move either one of his legs. She gently tries to pick him up again, but he howls out in pain. So she starts a long process of this nurse trying to get the young child to recover from this trauma. Because of her ancient training, she knew that she had to find some hyssop plants and either oil or powder of myrrh to help him. She would mix the crocus plant and the rock rose to help him, but the days would turn into months. And finally the years would mount, and little Mephibosheth was destined to be lame the rest of his life. This is what I want us to take away from that story. His injury came because someone else had dropped him. And like that, sometimes there are situations in life that causes us to fall and then damages our ability to ambulate through life. The whole set of circumstances was beyond his control, and he was dropped through no fault of his own. Mephibosheth will be the byproduct of another's failure. The nurse fell, and she was the cause of his shame. You know, like that, when Adam and Eve fell, we too fell, and likewise, we are byproducts of their shame. We too have been crippled by the fall. You see, it is impossible for a carnal man to walk in the paths of righteousness. Though he may try, he will always eventually fail, and he will always come short of the glory of God. Job even tells us that man is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. In other words, during this life, we are all going to get knocked around. We have been through the fire, and we have been through the flood. We have been tested, and we have been tried. For some of us, Every single day is hard. It's difficult to fall asleep at night, and it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. Many can relate to being the victims of such circumstances. Every day we hear stories about the victims of someone else's carelessness, like the child killed by a stray bullet from the barrel of a gang member's gun like the mother struck dead by a drunk driver leaving a prayer meeting. And like that, sometimes we are hurt through no fault of our own. In the case of Mephibosheth and the effort to help, someone hurt him. And I'm well aware this is one of the most bitter pills in all of life to swallow. You trusted someone else. You trusted someone that you love. And you ended up being crippled in that relationship. For some, it was a parent, a mother or a father who did not fully provide for you the need you were supposed to have in life. Now, years have passed, and you're still crippled by their negligence. 
It was an ex-husband or an ex-wife who hurt you to the core with their infidelity. The sick feeling ran deep into your soul. The bitter sting of betrayal hurt worse than if, if you would have had to endure a physical blow. It could be a situation in life like a stunning setback in business, a loss of a career, a troubling health problem, the partner who went back on his word, the loss of someone very dear to you, someone you trusted dropped you, and now you're crippled, it seems, for the rest of your life. There are those who can testify of being victims of someone else's mistakes. Like Mephibosheth who trusted his nurse, some of us can relate to being dropped by those that we placed our trust in. So we too are living crippled lives because someone in whom we show trust has dropped us. And our lives are still suffering the crippling effects of those disappointments. We are afraid to trust again because we have been lied to. We are afraid to take chances because of all of our past failures. We are afraid to follow our heart because the thought of making just one more mistake sends shivers down our spine. We simply can't handle another tragedy. We can't go through another illness. We can't sit through another funeral. We're just hanging on by a fine thread. We can't handle any more of life's misery. We need to see some of God's mercy. Can I say something very gently but very firmly to all of us this day? God can work it out. God in his unbelievable power can repair your heart, your mind, and your emotions. Our very souls cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, Lord, because the doctor says the next stroke that I have will be my last. Have mercy on me, Lord. I'm living from paycheck to paycheck, and I'm getting laid off next week. Have mercy on me, Lord. My marriage is failing, and my daughter is becoming sexually active. The great thing is God will and does have mercy upon us. No matter how terrible the blows that we may endure in this life, if you are a Christian, this life is the absolute worst part of your existence. And from eternity you will look back on all these troubles, and then this song will be your joy. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race until we see Christ. And Father, we need that today. We all admit, Lord, we cannot make it on our own. And if we think that we can, we are just being foolish. We've not had life knock us down hard enough for us to understand. Without you, we have no chance. Reveal yourself to us in a fresh and powerful way, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.